uh, a few things. Uh, we see Moses acting as this covenant intercessor. We've seen this before, haven't we? We saw it last week. In fact, uh, we saw it twice last week that Moses does this job of interceding for the people. He goes back and forth between the people who are sinning and God who is about to bring judgment. And he says, let me, let me see if I can make atonement for your sins, he says to the people. And he talks to the Lord and says, why is your anger burning hot? And he, he acts as this covenant intercessor. We see the same thing here. Moses is acting like a priest. And, and Moses, the priest, desires the reassurance of who God is. He wants to give the people, he wants to be reassured himself that God is actually going to follow through, that he is actually this forgiving God. And so what he asks for is to see God's glory. This is one of the the real pinnacles in the book of Exodus. I know I've said that several times, uh, but chapter 34, where God comes down and declares who he is, uh, it's hard to get higher theology than, than that section there. So we've got God's self-revelation back in chapter 3, you remember. He revealed that he is the Lord. We've got his self-revelation in chapter 19, and we've got his self-revelation here in chapter 34. If you, if you want to know sort of the mountain range of Exodus and where the peaks are, that's, that's where they are. Uh, if you want the real deep theology, everything else sort of centers around who God is in those statements. He is the God who exists He's the God who keeps covenant back in chapter 3. He's the God who saves and who brings his people to himself in chapter 19. And here in chapter 34, he is the God who is forgiving. He is kind, he's gracious and compassionate, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, and on and on and on. It goes in in chapter 34 there. Uh, But we see this this other pinnacle here. And and Moses, this priest, this intercessor, wants to know that God is going to be faithful to the things that he's promised to his people. He wants to know that God is going to forgive them and is going to be with them. And the way that he knows is when God shows his glory. Now, we'll talk about uh, what's going on there. But the rest of the section that we, uh, we looked at, we could summarize um, by, by saying um, that uh, God's care of his people can't be separated from his character and that God continues to condescend to his people through forgiveness. Uh, even though they don't deserve it, uh, as we saw in the golden calf narrative, Uh, He goes back again, and what we see in chapter 35, especially at the end of chapter 34 and into chapter 35, because we're probably not going to get much time to talk about those things, what we see is a resuming of the original narrative. You remember, this was was a a sidetrack. It was a pit stop uh, in the race that that God is running with his people. They've pulled off, uh, in a sense, to this golden calf, and now God says, okay, I've dealt with this. Now let's get back on track. How do you see that being illustrated, that that it's resuming the original narrative? What did you see there? How so? Yeah. Cut him again, Moses. Bring him again. The ones you broke, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's, he's not letting Moses off the hook there. Um, yeah, so he's, he's renewing the covenant. And in many ways, it's very similar to the covenant that came before, although there's not the same ceremony. Uh, originally, back in chapter 24, when the covenant was ratified with the people, there was a blood of a sacrifice, and Moses sprinkled it on the people, and uh, you know, all these, these wonderful imagery, all this imagery that's picked up in the book of Hebrews. Um, but, uh, but here, it's, it's more of God's declaration, uh, and it's on him. But he's doing the same thing, and, and he has Moses there, and he's cutting the tablets. He's, he's giving them the word of the, uh, 
uh, the commandment and the covenant again. Bill, you had your hand up there. Two new tablets, yeah. Anything else you saw there that is a resuming of the original narrative where we left off? Ronnie. Yes, so Moses resumes his original place with the people. How did, um, how did the golden calf incident begin? Do you remember? Ronnie, I think you're onto something here. How did the golden calf incident begin? Where is Moses? As for this man Moses, we don't know what has become of him. But now he's been up there another, it says at the end of chapter 34, he was with God another 40 days, another 40 nights. He was writing on the tablets the words of the Lord, the words of the commandment, and now he comes back down. He resumes his place among the people. So we're seeing the, the narrative thread pick back up at the end. How about the beginning, uh, the, the next little section in chapter 35? What do we find there? What are they gathering? Their belongings. For what? For the tabernacle. To give up to construct the tabernacle. Now, this was the narrative thread that began right before uh, the, the golden calf incident. Uh, you can think of it sort of in um, a modern corporation. Uh, in chapters 25 and on into about chapter 31, we have R&D. It's the, it's the research and development portion. It's when God says, here's the tabernacle. Here's how you can construct it. Here's the altar. Here's how it should be made. Here are all the things that should be done. And by the way, I've provided people to do these things. Uh, I've given you craftsmen. I've given you artisans. I've given you people who will do these things. And, and let's prepare. Let's get the, the schematic drawing, in a sense, the blueprint for what's going to happen. And it was at that point that the golden calf showed up and this whole incident of the people going after. Now, at the end, when the Lord has said, I will be with my people, I will do exactly as I said, the tabernacle is where I dwell with my people, now the narrative picks up again. And so they gathered together all of these things. And if you read the next portions, it basically mirrors the, the earlier chapters, which is why we're skipping over these ones again, because it's the same thing that we've already seen in a sense, and it goes back through. In the earlier chapters, 25 through 30, uh, it says, here's how you should make the tabernacle. Now, in chapters 35 and on into the, the beginning of 40, it says, here's how they made the tabernacle. And there's a mirror image of the two. And so the, the narrative thread is picked back up. There's this, this interruption with the golden calf. But in the end, we find that the Lord has forgiven his people. Now, let's take a look more at that forgiveness of the people. Um, take a look back, especially to the tent of meeting. Here is a strange uh, little portion of the narrative, uh, Moses has interceded, right? In, uh, in chapter 32, we've got a command to leave Sinai, which is where we left off at the end of last week, and it said the people heard this disastrous word. What was a disastrous word? Well, verse 3, go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, wonderful, but I will not go up among you, disastrous, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. We talked a little bit that about that last week. 
Uh, and then we come into the portion that we began, this tent of meeting. Now, what is significant about this tent of meeting? What do you see there that, that should stand out to us in this narrative? It's outside. It is outside of the camp. Uh, the whole thing about the, the tabernacle is that it was meant to be inside the camp. In fact, when you look later after the tabernacle is constructed, uh, and especially I believe it's in Numbers where the Lord uh, tells the people how they should march out and when they settle in a new place, how they should settle. The first thing they set up is the tabernacle. And then the 12 tribes camp around the tabernacle. Three in the north, three in the south, three in the east, three in the west. And so the tabernacle is supposed to be right at the very center of where God's people are. Yet it begins with this little story of the tent of meeting, that God is still meeting with his people. And in particular, he's meeting with Moses, isn't he? He's got this mediator. and He says, well, I'm not going to go among the people because they're stiff-necked, but I'm still going to meet with you, Moses. And Moses is still going to be my priest, and he's still going to be the intercessor for the people, and I'm still going to command him the things the people need to know, but it's going to be outside of the camp. It's going to be a bit removed from you. Now, now what is the response of the people to this? Do they, do they care about these things at all? Yeah. They were attentive. Um, if, if anything, perhaps... Uh, this is a showing that uh, the people's hearts have been softened. You know, that the work that the Lord has done in condemning their sin, that it really did, uh, it struck home. You know, it said at the end of the passage we read last time, all the people took off their ornaments. And we can debate about what that's all about, but it, it's certainly a sign of mourning. It was the ornaments that became a snare for them. They took off all their gold rings and their noses and all those things, and they made this golden calf. And so uh, they put away these things. There, there is a sense of reformation among the people. Uh, and they also care about these things. That Moses goes to meet with the Lord, and the people are attentive. They realize what's going on, and yet they're standing at their tents, and Moses is outside of the camp. So we see it's picking up where we left off last time, that, uh, that Moses uh, goes to meet the Lord, but he meets him outside of the camp. And that tees up the rest of, uh, of what we need to be talking about. Um, so Moses goes and he intercedes. We see that intercession beginning in verse 12 of chapter 33, and then it goes on um, into the end of the chapter. Now, how does, uh, how does Moses set it up? He, he's got this he claims what the Lord has said to him. Take a look at verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you've not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. You see the tension that he's creating there. You're telling me to lead this people. You're also telling me that I've found favor in your sight, but you are not giving the favor that I really want and that the people really need, which is namely that we know who's going to be with us. You said you're going to send an angel with us, but you haven't told us who that angel is, and, and I think he's getting to and, and will uh, be moving the direction of, Lord, why don't you go with us? That's what he says by the end of, of this intercession. He tees it up, though. He says, you say to me this and you say to me that, but there's this dissonance in the middle that you're not with me. Uh, and so for reassurance that the Lord is actually forgiving, Moses asks for two things. What are the two things that he asks for, uh, and why are they significant? You see the first one in the very next verse, verse 13. Show me your glory, 
Okay, we're going to get to that one. That one is in verse 18. That's the second thing that Moses uh, asks for. Bill, when we get to that one, I'm going to ask you to tell us about the significance of that one. Uh, How about the first one? Verse 13, what does Moses ask for? Show me your ways. What does that have to do with anything, Corey? Why, why does Moses say, show us your ways? In the, in the midst, considering everything that's going on, everything that's happened up to this point, uh, what does he say and why does he say it? Corey? <laughs> you want to phone a friend, Corey? You can. No pressure. <laughs> Yes. Yes. Uh, remember what the Lord told Moses when he was on top of the mountain with him. Um, he, uh, he told him uh, to go away and go down. I've seen this people. And he said, they've quickly turned from the way that I have commanded them. Right? Uh, and so Moses says, well, if, if we're going to go, we need to know your ways. You said you're going to lead us, but we need more than, than a GPS navigation system. We need more than just how to get from point A to point B. We need to know your ways. Right. Right, right. Yeah, he, he wants more than just, here's how to get to where I'm going to give you, but, but I want to know who you are. I don't want to be trained by your character. Yeah. Uh, it, it's interesting, probably not connected, uh, but an interesting thought experiment that in the New Testament, what you find... Uh, the early Christians, uh, they were, were called followers of the way. Um, not, not in the same sense necessarily, but the way of salvation. The, you know, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, and, and they were people who followed this God who led them and taught them and shepherded them. Uh, like I said, probably not uh, connected here uh, in any uh, intentional sense, but, but interesting to think about. Okay, so we've got show me your ways, uh, Moses says. Um, and what does he say after that? Uh, if I found favor in your sight, please show me your ways that I may know you. That's right. He wants the character in order to find favor in your sight. And he gives a, an additional argument there. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. Now, this is a tactic Moses has used before, isn't it? It seems to be when he goes to intercede with the Lord, he brings up God's promises over and over and over again. Uh, and I'm, I'm not remembering which Puritan it was offhand, but there was a Puritan who described prayer by saying prayer is promise turned into an argument. Maybe a bit simplistic, but I think that's pretty good. Uh, what do we do when we go to the Lord? We say, well, well, this is who I know you to be. This is what I know you to have promised. And so, Lord, will you be true to these promises? And, and that's how, you know, sometimes we say, well, um, you know, God tells us... Um, you know, ask anything according to my will, and you will have it. We said, well, how do I know if I'm asking according to his will? Well, what does he promise? What does he tell you about himself? How can you know that you're asking the right things? He hasn't, he hasn't lined out every detail of your life, but he has told you who he is. He has told you what he's concerned about. And so take those promises and, and use them, not, not in the sense of, uh, although you, as though you've got to convince the Lord, you've got to twist his arm, but, but use those arguments. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. Oh, Lord, you've said these things. And so when will this be? And, and how will these things happen? Yeah. <laughs> 
You know, and sometimes those things don't happen, um, and, and the Lord, uh, you know, gives these promises, but it's not the right time, and so we need to be prepared for those things. You know, we look uh, to the book of Revelation, and the church is still praying, how long, O oh Lord? Uh, not that God hasn't promised, or not that God hasn't shown himself to be the victor over all uh, human history, but, but the church still waits sometimes, and so we need to be prepared for that, but, but use those arguments, use uh, God in his ways. Mike, you're going to add to that. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Um, so, so there's there's a sense of leading here, um, a sense of we need to know, we need to be directed by you. But there's also a sense of, I need to know the way that you operate. Not just what you command of us, but we need, we need to know how you are. Show me your ways. Uh, and we'll see that, and, and remind me if I forget. But we're going to get to what the Lord answers, uh, and how he answers Moses here in, in just a few uh, minutes. Bill. Yeah, so there, there's life uh, in following the ways of the Lord and, and being directed by him. Yeah, so really that's what we're doing here. Yeah. Looking at worthless things to ask. Yes. And uh, turn my eyes from that. Get me out of there, right. Lord, and show me how I should live. Right, right. One more comment from Rob and we'll move on. Touche, Rob. Very nice. Thank you. I, I had not considered that, but that is very good. Uh, I think we will also see God answer this question directly here in just a minute. So what was the second thing? Bill, you raised it. Now, the second thing Moses asks for in verse 18 is not just show me your ways, but show me your glory. What does that have to do uh, with what he is asking or what the situation is and, and what's going on here? So he's saying, in a, in a sense, show us something that's going to put this all in perspective. Uh, reveal yourself to us. Show, us. show us your glory. Show us who you are. Humble us under your hand. That's what happens when men see the glory of God. They are humbled. We saw that last week in Revelation. When you see it uh, consistently, that people stand before the glory of God and they fall flat on their face. Uh, and so he's asking for something that will be uh, inherently humbling. Now, is Moses being selfish here? He doesn't say, show us your glory. He says, show me your glory. 
Why doesn't he involve everybody else in the, in the whole deal? Ronnie. Yeah, so he has that personal desire to know the Lord. Uh, it's not selfishness. It's, it's a reassurance of who God is and his character for him. Rob. Aha! He, that's right. He is the covenant head. He's the representative. And so he stands before the Lord as a representative of the people. He goes inside the tabernacle. He goes inside of the tent of meeting. Uh, and he comes bearing the responsibility and in a sense although not in the, the same sense as maybe Aaron and the other priests will when they go into the, the Day of Atonement, he bears the sins of the people. And so he's presenting, again, remember what, what we just talked about a little bit ago, uh, all of this imagery of the covenant that's coming up again. Moses is asking, in a sense, for a reenactment of the first giving of the, the commandments and the law that the Lord has given. What happened when Moses went up on the mountain the first time? The glory of the Lord descended in a cloud. And Moses was there with him. And the people saw. And the mountain shook. And all of these things happened. And then finally, when the people were overwhelmed, they said, Moses, don't let the Lord talk to us. The Lord will talk to you. You will talk to us. And so now Moses is going back and saying, Lord, show me your glory. I need a reminder that you have actually dealt with these things. Let's go back to square one. Let's set things back in order. Show me your glory again. I need to know from your character and who you are and your overwhelming glory that you are the God who actually deals with us. Steve. Absolutely, absolutely. So he, he does mediate that glory. Now, this is an interesting fact. You've probably seen um, statues of Moses. You've seen statues of Moses with horns. Everybody seen that? Um, take a look. You, if you haven't seen them, um, you know, look for some Renaissance statues of Moses. There's a translational difference uh, that can be interpreted that way. And so, for a long time, that's how the church interpreted it, that Moses had horns. Uh, but it's really talking about this shining face of Moses, uh, that he came and, and he was radiating with the glory of the Lord when he came down. But uh, next time you see a, a statue of Moses, you'll notice he, he's, he's got horns up there. Rob. I don't know if, it, if it's a particular quote. So the Lord does say that, right? And so we almost need to wrestle between the sense of what did it say Moses did in the, the tent of meeting. Uh, it says, verse 11, Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Well, then it says, um, where is it? But he said, you cannot see my face, verse 20, for man shall not see me and live. Okay. Uh, probably there's some anthropomorphic language happening here in one of these. And, and God is saying... Uh, in a sense, I'll, I'll show you some of me, but you can't see the full glory because it, it would consume you. And that was 
the problem you remember at the end of last week when we studied. I will not go up among you, for it is a stiff-necked people, and if I go up among you, I will consume them. That if God's glory dwells with sinful people, uh, sinful people are consumed. Uh, and, and, you know, it's picked up again in Hebrews, our God is a consuming fire. Um, so we've got all these things in play. How does the Lord answer Moses' intercession? What does he say he will do? And Mike, here we're getting to uh, the answer to your question. He tells them two things. Um, he, Moses asks, show me your ways that I may know you. And then he says, please show me your glory. Verse 19. And I will make all my goodness pass before you. Moses didn't ask for goodness, did he? Same thing. I think this is the answer, to Mike, to your question. Uh, God says, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy to whom I show mercy, but you can't see my face and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on a rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock, and I'll cover you until I've passed by. He says you're going to see two things. Moses asks for his ways and his glory, and God says I'm going to show you my goodness and my glory. Now, now goodness is, is really a more concrete term than ways. Uh, ways is, is uh, kind of ethereal. Uh, you know, even, even in discussing it, we're trying to get to the point of knowing what exactly he's talking about. Uh, it's sort of this, this indistinct word. But, but goodness, uh, he has goodnesses in mind, I think. There are particular goodnesses that you can, you can think of. Uh, I think what he's mentioning here is he's going to remind uh, Moses of, of his acts with his people. If you want to see my ways, if you want to know who I am, just think about the ways that I have been good to my people. Think about the ways and the things that I have uh, done for you, the ways that I have brought you to myself, the, the kindness that I've shown to you. And I'm going to repeat these things. And that's what he does when he shows up and he says, the Lord, the Lord, gracious and compassionate, abounding in steadfast love. Moses says, oh yeah, we're still here. We've not been consumed. He is abounding in steadfast love and mercy and all of these other things. He, he sees his glory. He sees his goodness. But those two are intertwined. They can't really be separated. Uh, but we do see them in the history of God working with his people. So I think there is an immediate answer. But I, I really like uh, Rob's answer that, yes, he, he does get to see eventually uh, the fullness of God's glory and the fullness of God's goodness. Okay. Um, yes, Teresa. We will behold his face, it says. We will behold his face. Um, it also says, so, so let's, I'm not going on too much of a rabbit trail. We won't turn there. Um, we see a bit of his glory now. So, Jesus comes, take a look in John chapter 1. That's still Luke. There we go. John chapter 1, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt. The word actually is tabernacled. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. 
Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. There's another little hint there we might talk about. Um, Skip on down to verse 16. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Do we see God's glory? Well, the disciples saw it in Jesus. Some of them began to see it unveiled at the Mount of Transfiguration. Haven't you recognized the glory has been among you all along? Yeah, we will, we will see his glory. We will not exhaust his glory. We will not see the end of it. We, we will not, uh, in the way that you can, you know, you have some object and you can look at it from every angle and you say, I've, I've seen it all. We'll, we'll never get to that point. Now, together with this, uh, the disciples saw it. We say, well, that's good for the disciples, but what about us? Uh, do we get to see God's glory? In heaven, I think, yes, we'll see God's glory. We'll behold him uh, face to face. But take a look at, at what it says in, first, in 2 Corinthians, rather, chapter 4, verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of the darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Well, we see it now already spiritually. Uh, when we read God's word and we are impressed with the person of Christ, uh, when we are drawn to worship, almost uh, apart from ourselves, and I, I didn't, you know, I, I went to my uh, my quiet time this morning, and I didn't mean to get caught up in worship. I just meant to tick the box and read. But it happens. Uh, the, the Spirit works, and we see the glory of God in the face of Christ. And, and there's something that's happening there. Now, this really, we won't take the time to read it, but you might want to uh, go back in chapter three and four. Uh, in, in 2 Corinthians, chapter 3 and 4, uh, Paul is making a distinction between the veiled face of Moses and the unveiled face of, of Jesus Christ. That we see something better than the Israelites saw. Uh, because when those come and, and they see the law, they read the law, he says, a veil remains over their hearts. that They can't understand the thing that it was really pointing to. But we, with unveiled face, uh, get to see the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, verse 18, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image. Not just Moses' face shining, but our, our face shining in a sense. From one degree of glory to another, for the, this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. How does he do it? Well, he makes us to see the glory of God in the face of Christ. So it, it did happen, it does happen, and it will happen, yes. So I think we'll, we will see this glory. Yeah. There's, there's the short <laughs> <laughs> There's a short answer. All right. Now, when we, when we get into this next section, um, chapter 34, uh, I want you to notice, this is something you can take with you and see the next time you're reading the Old Testament. Uh, look at verse 5, and look at the way that the verbs are piled on top of one another. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed by before him and proclaimed. This is the way that Hebrew narrative goes into slow motion. Now, you remember if you've seen the Matrix, there's that point at which Neo is getting bullets shot at him and he goes, Whoa! and he goes into slow motion and it's all this focus and you see everything. This is what Hebrew narrative is doing in verse 5. You see it all over the place. You see it in Genesis chapter 2 uh, with, with Abraham and his son. 
And, and there's verb after verb after verb, and he took the knife, and he rose in the morning, and he split the wood, and he took the fire, and all these things, and it's meant to draw our attention. Uh, The Hebrew narrative is pointing out, you need to stop, you need to pay attention, you need to see what's happening here. And the next thing that happens is the Lord comes down, and he proclaims his glory. Now, um, let's let's read it. We won't have much time to unpack it at all. Um, The Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful, and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And then look at verse 8, and Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. He did the right thing. Uh, What do we see when people come before the glory of the Lord? They fall on their face. Uh, They worship the Lord. And he said, if now I found favor in your sight, O Lord, uh, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. Here he has seen the glory of the Lord, and he does the last thing that you would expect a person who has seen the glory of the Lord to do. What did the Lord say? In, uh, in chapter 33. But I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you were a stiff-necked people. And Moses says, you're right. <laughs> we are a stiff-necked people, and the only place that we are safe is close by your side. This is what God's glory does. Uh, when we see him in his glory and in his goodness, when we recognize that he is the one who forgives we have this reverent fear that, that some non-believers scoff at. Why would you be afraid of you? Why, why does Scripture talk about fear? They don't understand it. Uh, but Scripture often talks about this reverent fear. But it's not a fear that, that causes us to stay away. If we know God's forgiveness, it's a fear that draws us close. It's the same thing that, that God said to Moses, wasn't it? Uh, I will make my goodness pass before you. And I will make my glory to pass before, by before you. And there is a place close to me where you can be safe from my glory. And I'm going to hide you as my glory passes over. Now, I, somebody said, I, I heard, um, that, that that is the text uh, behind rock of ages cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Uh, that there's a cleft in the rock near to where God is and close to his glory, and that's the only place that we can be safe. Uh, that we draw closer to him. That's what Moses asks for. Come and, and be with us because you're right. It is a stiff-necked people. But I know who you are. I know that you're the one who forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. Now, it says several things about, about the Lord. Um, and this really becomes a refrain in the Old Testament. Uh, this becomes uh, sort of the catchphrase. Who is the Lord? Give us, you know, give us your quick definition. And it shows up all over the place. There's a shorter version of it uh, that shows up. And then sometimes there's a longer version of it. Can I ask a few people to grab some scriptures for me? Can I get somebody to grab real quick uh, Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 17? Anybody? Anybody? Thank you, Cynthia. Uh, Nehemiah 9, 17. Somebody else? Psalm 86, verse 15. Andre, thank you. Somebody else? Jonah chapter 4. Jonah chapter 4, verse 2. Corey. Uh, And then Mike, did I see a hand? Great, let me give you Joel chapter 2, verse 13. Everybody else, everybody else, turn to Numbers chapter 14. 
So who had Nehemiah 9? Cynthia. Uh, can you read verse 31 as well? Sorry. Okay, so we see the longer version in that first verse, and we see the shorter version in the second. You were a God who is gracious and merciful. Uh, Psalm 86, who had that one? Andre, 86.15. Okay, somebody else had Jonah chapter 4, Corey, verse 2. That's an interesting one. You remember when we went through Jonah not too long ago, uh, that, that this is the almost inescapable character of who God is. Jonah didn't like the Ninevites. He didn't want to go to Nineveh. He said, this is why, because I know that this is how you work. I know that you're a God who forgives. And quite frankly, I don't want you to forgive them. But it's this this inescapable quality of who God is. And it is peppered all throughout the Old Testament. Uh, If you're looking for it, you will find it everywhere. Uh, Either in the shorter version or in the longer version. Somebody else, uh, Mike, had Joel chapter 2, verse 13. Okay, so we see the same thing. Now, everybody else had turned to Numbers chapter 14. Uh, We see in the larger context this is a rebellion of the people. Um, And then in verse uh, 13, we'll start reading. But Moses said to the Lord, then the Egyptians will hear of it. God has threatened to destroy them again. Uh, Then the Egyptians will hear of it, for you brought up this people in your might from among them, and they will tell the inhabitants of this land. They have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people. For you, O Lord, are seen face to face, and your cloud stands over them, and you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Now, if you kill this people as one man, then the nations who have heard your fame will say, it is because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land that he swore to give to them that he has killed them in the wilderness. And now please let the power of the Lord be great. As you have promised, saying, The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation. Please pardon the iniquity of this people, according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. A few things to grab out of that. This is the the largest Uh, reproduction of that same passage we just saw in Exodus chapter 34, okay? Uh, We see snippets of it throughout the Old Testament. This is almost in full, almost word for word, and it shows up at a time of great sin again, uh, not surprisingly, Uh, but we see it again coming from Moses now as an argument to the Lord, and what does he say? He said not just uh, that uh, that this is the way that you revealed yourself to us, Uh, what did he say? Verse 17, and now please let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised 
saying. And then he repeats the phrase. Moses interprets, and I think we are supposed to interpret this passage in Exodus chapter 34 as God's promise to be who he proclaims to be for his people. This is a promise that he is the one who is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And we see other places, uh, mercy and truth, or grace and truth. Remember in John chapter 1, grace and truth came through Christ. This is, this is the, the Greek version of the Hebrew word in John chapter 1. Grace and truth, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. It's the same thing. And so the, the New Testament even picks up these threads. But it, it's God's promise to his people. Um, now, one last thing uh, before we end. How can the Lord, uh, in Exodus chapter 34, he says, verse 7, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. That doesn't sound like much of a promise. Part of that almost sounds like a threat. Uh, and we've got this, uh, you know, we were talking about this uh, at our prayer meeting on Wednesday. There is this tension between these two things. And Moses and the people are left with it. And God says, this is who I am. I'm the one who forgives, but I'm also the one who does not clear the guilty. How do we resolve these things? And I realize it's probably an obvious answer. I know that it's all on the tip of your tongue. Uh, it's, it's the quintessential Sunday school answer. How do we resolve these things? Yes. Is there anything significant about the ten times they saw God's glory in the wilderness? Is there somebody else who saw God's glory ten times and refused to soften his heart? Pharaoh. That you may see and know that I am the Lord your God. And so here they come in numbers and ten times. These ten times my people have rebelled. I've been slow to anger. But we're going to deal with this. Now, now, what is the Sunday school answer, Jay? You've got it, I know, right? Well, Christ, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Uh, so Jesus Christ is, is the answer to, to this quandary. Uh, and uh, you can see that. I think I've maybe used the, the illustration before. Uh, it's like two separate drum beats uh, that pound throughout the Old Testament. That God is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And there, there's one rhythm. Uh, that, that pounds that out throughout the Old Testament. There's another rhythm that pounds out God's justice. And we see over and over again in the Proverbs, it, it talks about cursed is the man uh, who, who um, justifies the ungodly, who basically says it is a, a terrible thing to take someone who is guilty and to make them as though they were righteous. 
And then we find in Jesus Christ, Romans chapter 3, these two drum beats become uh, syncopated. Uh, they, they come into to rhythm with one another. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. God's righteousness. He is is not unrighteous to to clear the, the guilty. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time. To show that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And this is where these two themes, this is where the tension is resolved, that it's in Christ. He came and laid down his life as a propitiation to take the sin, to take the guilt of the sin that we deserve uh, in order to give the righteous statement, the the righteous declaration that we are justified in him. I think it's a good place to end. Um, And uh, can I get a volunteer to close us in prayer? That's harder than asking somebody to read, I realize. If not, I'll just pick on an, uh, an elder. Chris? Thank you, sir. Amen. Thank you, folks. Remember, no Sunday school next week. Not that any of you are going to show up uh, for Sunday school on Christmas morning anyway, uh, but no Sunday school next week or the week after.